All right, this is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, yeah, I'm here and you're there. And um, <laughs> that guy named Trump is on his way to the White House. So uh, this is uh, quite a moment in the history of this country. Um, and, and the moment is, is not just about having elected a man who... Uh, you know, he's not transparent, and yet he is transparent, right? He he really, we don't know anything about his finances. Um, we know more about his private life than we want to know. Um, he, but he, he's transparent in the sense that, um, or he's not transparent in the sense that we really don't know what he's going to do when he gets into office. He cannot do the things he says he wants to do. He's not going to build a great wall. He is not going to dismantle all of our trade agreements or our or any of our um, uh, alliances with with international um, security organizations such as NATO. Um, there's just so much of what he has said he's going to do that people think he's going to do that he's simply not going to be able to do. So what is he going to do? That's that's one question. The second thing is um, we are we are dealing with a a profound moment, really. And I've been saying this, and a lot of other people have been saying this, but it really wasn't part of either his rhetoric or, for that matter, the rhetoric of of his his opponent, um, Hillary Clinton. And that is, we we are in this huge economic transformation and and those who listen to my show know that I talk about this a lot because it's such a such a profound reality that we are not addressing and and I think one of the reasons he got elected really is because neither the democrats nor the republicans have been grappling with this at the level that we need to be grappling with it so if you look at what um, has been going on in this country economically uh, with the total transformation of our, our, our uh, economic base, you know, essentially the evaporation of manufacturing as a source of jobs and, and um, as a source of income in this country, because not only just because we've, we've um, uh, pushed it offshore to places where people earn a lot less money than we do who who you know may earn per per month um per day rather um per month what we earn per day i mean just really phenomenal uh, differences in in uh, in economic uh, reimbursement for what they do for a living which is you know sit on those assembly lines and do that work over there that we used to do over here but it's really about the fact that manufacturing jobs are on the way out altogether at some point. You know, robots are going to be doing that. Everybody's talking about the jobless economy. What are we all as humans going to be doing? And you know what? This is something, you know, seriously, we're not dealing with in the long term. We're dealing with in the short term. So he got elected because there's a lot of people out there who either don't have jobs can't progress in their in their careers, have kids they can't afford to, to send to college, have kids who are unemployed. I mean, 
in, in a very broader sense, maybe we're not in the middle of a depression or a crash, but in a, in a broader sense, we're in the middle of a huge cataclysmic, um, I use the word cataclysmic, which is really a word I used a lot after the storm because a cataclysm is a water-driven catastrophe, but we're in the middle of a huge catastrophe, and, and that's why, in part, a lot of people voted for this guy. Now, I'm not going to deal with the questions of bigotry and conservatism versus liberalism. I just don't think it's about those things. Bigotry is the other face, you know, like those Mardi Gras masks? It's the other face of fear and insecurity and hopelessness. That's where bigotry comes from. It's not just because people are born bigots. They become bigots out of fear for their position in the world relative to other people's position in the world. At least that's my belief, and I think there's a lot of sociologists out there that are great with that. So that was my little rant about what this election um, means. And um, so this guy, he's not going to get in there and do what he said he's going to do. It's just not going to happen, folks. But the question is, what is he going to do? And are the people who are looking for some kind of really profound change in the um, economy that we have to figure out how to live with, just as we here in Louisiana and anybody in any coastal area and actually on the whole darn planet are going to have to figure out how to deal with climate change, which I just came from a luncheon talking about predicted land loss and income loss in this state as a result of climate change. And it's phenomenal. It's just utterly phenomenal. We're talking $150 billion in the next 50 years and more. Really, it's going to be so much more than that. So we have to deal with these things. We can't just, you know, um, hide behind questions of this trade agreement or that trade agreement or uh, whether we like abortion, we don't like abortion, or we like gay people or we don't like gay people. I mean, all of those things are so peripheral to what's really going on here. So I I really uh, am concerned about that. Now, I'm looking for an historian uh, named Larry Powell, who I'm hoping is going to be available shortly. And I, uh, uh, so, uh, Mr. Engineer Jazz, do we have Mr. Powell, or we're not going to have him yet? All right, so we're going we're gonna to start instead with a guy named Morgan Malthrop, who is somebody I have known and worked with on a number of different kinds of projects for quite a while, and he's very multi-talented. And um, <laughs> he's here actually to promote an event that's coming up, but in, in the meantime, um, uh, I, I want to put a question to him because he wrote this interesting book about Andrew Jackson. And, you know, when Andrew Jackson got into office, there was a lot of controversy over him, too. When he first came in, there was a, a, a lot of people who were really scared of him and what he was going to do. And um, we're going we're gonna to talk with um, Morgan about how Andrew Jackson might have dealt with this. However, do we now have Mr. Powell? On? Okay, we have Mr. Powell on the line. So is he on line one or two? Two. Okay. Here we go. Larry Powell. Hi. Hi, historian. And um, author of the book, The Accidental City, which I really want to touch on that for a minute before we get off the air with you. Um, and, and we talked a little bit earlier this morning, and I, you probably didn't hear my little rant just now, but it, was, uh, it followed, tracked the conversation that we had on the phone earlier about the, 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 just the, the major, major transformative aspects of our economy that are not really being addressed by the powers that be whether they're in government or the private sector or even nonprofits. And, and, and so 
you know, and I also just made the statement that essentially I, I really don't think um, that President Trump, oh my God, I hate to put those two words together, but that President Trump is actually going to be able to do the things that he said he was going to do. So the big mystery is what is he really going to do? And then the other question is what should he be doing? So Larry, give me your perspective from a historian's point of view on where we are right now, this moment. This is a very extraordinary moment in this country's history. And, and, and how does it read to you? Well, it's, it's fairly unprecedented. I think even in American history, there's never been an outsider quite like him to have break, broken through to power. And whether he's going to do everything he says he's going to do remains to be seen. He's already announced one... Uh, uh, decision that I think should give us all pause. He's, he wants to tear up the, uh, the Paris uh, climate, uh, climate Agreement, uh, which I think was you know, be a huge mistake, because uh, everything I've read and seen is that uh, man-made climate change is, is real, and there's no scientific debate about it. So what else he, he plans to do? What else does he have up his sleeve? I, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I agree with you that he can't do everything. He, he won't do everything. He's, he can't uh, do most of what he said he's going to do. I mean, he, he can't dissolve our relationship with, with NATO. Uh, maybe he can uh, take down our, um, our, our, our trade agreements, uh, NAFTA, and he, and he can avoid the one um, – I forget the exact initials. I know there's a couple of P's and T's in there about the uh, Asian uh, agreement that we were on the brink of signing. He can do things like that, but, you know, he can't fundamentally um, walk back our nation to an isolationist period from 200 years ago. Well, I don't think he can, and I'm not sure that the uh, corporate America will allow him to do that. Uh but, you know, we're really in uncharted waters here. There's no question about it. And it's not, you're, you're right, it's not just the the political upheavals of our time and the polarization. You know, I think some of the forces that are remaking America are larger than government. I mean, that's where one of those, those hinge moments, like the shift from uh, an agrarian to an industrial economy, when those forces simply eclipse whatever power that governments have. And uh, I don't see the will or even the ability right now, especially if you're dealing with globalization. It's, it's just really frightening. So if, if, if it's beyond the capacity of government to deal with, and, and certainly that's been the case for the past, I don't know, really half a century, if, if, that, if that is true, then what forces control the direction things go in? If, if, if it's not government... How how do who shapes the future? How well, is mean, it going think, to be shaped? You know, I think we're probably going to have to look at some real grassroots movement of trying to get control of, of local governments. And uh, I've I be, I become a, a big uh, believer in the paradox of small beginnings, as opposed to utopian imaginings. Uh, and I think, I mean, you do need a, an overarching vision, but I think you can't just go for that without trying to make take those baby steps. And maybe we're at that point right now. 
and from that could come some vision and some some strategy to make uh, put life back on some meaningful in some meaningful orbit. Right now, it, we just feel I think we all feel somewhat uh, shell shocked. Shell shocked, but I think uh, you know at, at the mercy of forces larger than ourselves. You know, I think when you think of this election, even even Trump and his people were gobsmacked by it. I mean, eight o'clock last night, they were fully prepared to lose, and now they've had this huge wave election. They've unleashed this, you know, this titanic energy that's been pent up in a, in a largely white working class, rural, small town America that feels like it's been neglected and and. Uh, uh, and condescended to, and now he's got to do something. And I, you know, he—they kind of own it. He owns it now, but it—I, I, you know, I—I'm torn. I mean, I don't. Uh, gosh, I guess I'm with uh, Obama and Clinton, saying we we got to hope he succeeds. And he does play. He is playing a strong hand. I mean, he—he's uh, the, 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 the charisma of his appeal. With this really hidden vote that that smacked everyone side the head last night, uh, it's a cudgel that he could use against uh, an obstructionist kind of do-nothing Republican majority. Uh, they may they have to govern now, and he has to make them govern, and he's got in his power to do that. Now, whether you know whether he has to dis- self-discipline. <laughs> Or even the interest, uh, that also remains. Well, it, it is an interesting, it's a very interesting point. Sometimes you can achieve change more in a sense from the inside. You call him an outsider, but on the other hand, he, he got elected as a Republican. So, th- and they, I guess they took both the House and the Senate, so, you know, they're all up there now. So, can, what do they stop as they've been stopping the Democrats? They just stop themselves? So, what do they do? Well, Sit I mean, there with, the under, with their hands under their you know, b- behinds? So, I mean, he. That's, that's not a unified Republican party. Well, I, I realize that. So, are, is it Republicans fighting re- Republicans or. Um, is it that, as, as you say, that maybe they have to actually get something done, that they can't just, you know, uh, stop the Democrats from doing something. They're going to have to actually do something. So do we get, in a way, more action as a result of having Trump in the White House than we would have with Hillary? Well, that, that's one of the ironies of this. That could happen. Because I don't think Hillary would have had, a, had an easy road trying to go. Yeah, she would have had a hard, yeah. terribly difficult road. You know, they would be, she'd be fending off one uh, impeachment effort and, and uh, congressional investigation after another. And it could be worse, lock, uh, gridlock worse than ever. And But he might be able to do it. I mean, he if he's really serious. Uh, but the worrisome thing is the people he's going to surround himself with. And uh, they're, they're not a very impressive bunch. I mean, Giuliani seems like he's... he's uh, He's he's outlived his shelf life, and Newt <laughs> Gingrich, I've also always found a little bit, little bit goofy. I think he's a smart guy. He actually got a history PhD at Tulane. Oh my God! He's a he's a he's no dummy, but he's kind of you know he just seems to me uh, frivolous, uh, smart, 
very smart, but kind of frivolous about a lot of stuff. Well, what's also so ironic about these characters is that they're also high and mighty about their, um, you know, moral family, religious-oriented universe, and yet all three of the guys you just mentioned have pretty seamy personal lives, you know, multiple wives, mistresses in yeah, between, well, yeah, no, you know. I mean, it goes on and on, but I mean, I've never felt that people's personal lives should really be a part of the, the political discourse. But you know, let me ask you this: um, uh, Tell me just for a minute the basic thesis of your book, *The Accidental City*, and the kind of decisions that were made about New Orleans in its fa- founding that relate to what we're talking about right now, and 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 what lessons, if any, can you draw from that? From our birth, the birth of this state, to what this to I guess kind of a rebirth that we're going to be going through now. Who knows uh, what kind of progeny are going to be created? But is there anything that you studied about how we were shaped that relates to what we're going through now? What do you mean, environmentally or just politically or? Politically, just, you know, I, I, one, of the, one of the curious things, we, we debate all the time why New Orleans is where it is, right? And, yeah. and, and I just came from a, a luncheon where the Rand Corporation presented um, their predictions of, of, of the cost of land loss in the state of Louisiana in terms of jobs, businesses, Property, income, everything, and it was right. just phenomenal. Yeah, um, it, it, it really you is. know, they're they're speculating, and they know it's on the low side—150 billion dollars within the next right. 25 to 50 years, depending on how whether or not we have a huge. And you know, there's one statement that they made at this meeting that really sticks out in my mind. They said, "There, in all likelihood, will be a major levy break within this period of time. When you have a major levy break." In this city, all bets are off. So, I mean, we have a pretty dire future ahead of us. So, what are we doing here? Well, I mean, ever since they, you know, ever since we began to the project, the, the Promethean project of trying to turn what is was an ancient wetland into a dry land, uh, we should have realized uh, that there was only a, a, a finite period of time. For this for this area, I mean, look, this is one of the few places on the planet where historic time and geologic time practically march hand in hand. I mean, it was when was this land formed? About 1400, you know, not not too long before the you know discovery of the of the New World. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, that 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 chore where the where the Paris uh, Harris Casino and the Warehouse District and the Convention Center and the Rivergate all stand. I mean, all that land, if you can believe it, was was actually formed in the 19th century. So this is a very fragile ecology, and once we decided to pin the river between these two earthen berms uh, and and destroy the, the river's ability to do what it has done historically and geologically, that is act as a prodigious land-producing machine, uh, we were, in effect, writing a death warrant for these fragile wetlands because the one thing that could replace the land, replenish the soil that was being, that was, you were losing through subsidence and, and uh, 
coastal erosion. Uh, uh, you know, once we did, we, we built those levees, we could no longer uh, save that land. We could no longer replenish it. So, yeah. you know, we're in a, it sort of is what it is. Now, I mean, I do have faith in, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, the engineering genius and the ingenuity of Americans. We're mechanical dudes. You know, inventive people. I mean, maybe we can figure out a way to save it. But you know, it's a it's a it's a daunting challenge. So, so I want to ask you about the one of the things that strikes me about this um, election again is more than anything else, it seems to be a demonstration of the value and the importance of extreme ego. I mean. This this guy just his, his his ego is endless, and he was criticized for it. But on the other hand, it's his endless ego that got him elected. He just pushed through everything that was going on with the force of that ego. To what extent was the force of somebody's ego the reason why we are located where we are, and? Are, are sort of paying the price for that ego, and and it makes you wonder how high a price we're going to have to pay for the cost of this ego that's now uh, on his way to the White House. You know, it's it's egos are good and a bad thing. Sometimes I I talk a lot about artists and 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 which artists succeed and which don't. And I've always said that um, a a surplus of ego is is something that is really important in in achieving success. That ego is a big part of success. Make one observation. I you know, you're, I guess you're referring to Bienville, who was yep. kind of an interesting character. But, you know, here's the, the paradox of New Orleans. I, I don't think New Orleans as we know it, this kind of funky culture uh, where people have figured out how to coexist even when they, they are at, at sword's point, and where, you know, this great American art form of traditional jazz was born, I don't think New Orleans would have evolved into the kind of place it is today or it became had it been up, you know, in some high and dry ground outside Baton Rouge. Because I think what made it distinctive was these folks had to kind of crowd together on this ribbon of land. Interesting, you know, this natural yeah. Levy. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's never had these ethnic enclaves, these ghettos. Right. Uh, you couldn't escape one another, and you right. know we're all outdoors, sitting on the stoops, and you know it's a performance place, and so you know that's the trade-off, and I think that's one of the great contingencies I think in New Orleans history that it was, you know, it was built in a punishing location that uh, paradoxically made possible the kind of cultural synthesis that have drawn so many people here and have kept them. A perfect example of um, unintended consequences, in this case, uh, uh, good ones, but in many cases, not so good ones. But I just want to go back for one second to the ego question, because this is one that intrigues me, because you ask, how did this guy get elected? And you just have to go back to his ego. When when Bienville said, we're going to do this, we're planting our flag right here, and I actually, during the World's Fair, remember staging a little um, press conference (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> demonstration with um, Native Americans in attendance while somebody planted the flag. And actually, Morgan Mothrop, who's uh, coming up next to talk with us, um, was hey, there. Larry. Was there and helped plan this crazy event that we did. This reenactment of 
uh, Benville planting his flag. But why did he do it? Why did he do it there? And 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 was was his did his ego just win out over others, or you know how did that happen? Well, it was well, kind of a fluke of history. I mean, he 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 thought this is where the company of the Indies wanted to build the new headquarters. This was a co- proprietary company owned by that Scottish banker and gambler John Law, mm-hmm. and he wanted to put it here because he saw as an to engross a lot of the land for himself, his family, and his cronies from Canada, usually from Montreal. Uh, he, you know, he wanted, like his older brother, Iberville, he wanted to be a, a big landed baron. So I, I can't help but draw the the connection between that and the um, the uh, way that um, uh, Trump has lived his life and, and the way he has pursued real estate. So. We have now, uh, we had a, a, somebody after his personal um, uh, real estate empire back then, and here we are with one again. Um, you know what, Larry, I, I look forward to uh, having you come chat with us uh, more uh, often in the future. Now that I, I found your cell number and I know how to get to you, um, I'm going to have you back. We're going to talk some more, but at this point I'm going to move on. And I, you can stay, stay online if you'd like and, and listen as uh, Morgan Malthrop joins the conversation because – you know, as I said, Morgan is actually here to promote the... Hey, Larry, uh, how are you doing? Hi, Morgan. How are you doing? Congratulations. I, I, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, Gene, I get most of my information from from Larry Powell's books, so, you know, you might as well... He'll know what I have to say is just anything that he's already said already. Well, what what we're doing is is um, we're really kind of uh, still... We're we're wringing our hands a little bit. I mean, I'm still wringing my hands, that's for sure. But um, so Morgan's going to come on and talk about the Faulkner Festival coming up this weekend, which is a celebration of the literary heritage of our area. Another thing that was probably an unintended consequence of pushing all us crazy folks together. But um, he also uh, uh, did this book on on Andrew Jackson. Again, this is probably Larry might have been one of your sources for that. But uh, I'm, I'm fascinated about Jackson because he was another big ego guy, and he actually, when he came into the White House, people were scared of him, too. They thought he was something of a, of a rabble-rouser, and, and, they, and he was something of an outsider. He was, he was a, not a Washington um, insider. And, um, I, I, you know, I don't know that much about his, his administration. I mean, Trail of Tears happened under his watch, so that wasn't a really cool... Thank, thank uh, disaster. He wanted to change the banks. He thought, he thought that all paper money was... Uh, was funny money, and so uh, he he was the ultimate outsider. He he was too, right? Yes, and he ran the first true, you know, political campaign in, in modern terms. It was a very nasty campaign. It was so nasty that uh, his opponents basically brought out the information that he was a bigamist. He had two wives. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a matter of timing with regard to separation from, and in fact, his wife died before he went to the White House almost tragically because they had a very, very strong relationship together, Rachel and he. And, um, you know, funnily enough, I ended my book at the Battle of New Orleans because I did not want to get into the problematic aspects of Jackson's presidency and the way his personality played out, not as a general winning the Battle of New Orleans, but as a president who wanted to take populist ideas and bring them forward with an agenda. 
the, the connections here are just replete. And so my, my instinct about the relationship is, is valid. But so, so tell me, both of you, what, how, let's compare what Jackson did in the office with what we might expect with, um, with Trump. And, and are, were there any lessons to be learned about how government, in, in a sense, and, and, and the, the socio-political universe dealt with Jackson? I mean, how are we going to deal with Trump? Because we're going to have to deal with him, by the way. We can't just sit by and let him play. We've, we've got to uh, interact and, and, and to some extent mitigate and or aim him in the right direction. I mean, we've got a lot of thinking about how to deal. You know, his father sent him off to military school in, in high school because he was such a brat, apparently. So so what's our equivalent today? What kind of – I mean, honestly, <laughs> Larry, I'll take the first part of this. is uh, uh, Jackson's inauguration, you know – Trump made fun of the Clintons being uh, insiders and using, uh, you know, a pay-for-play situation. But Jackson decided since he was now the people's president and the first one that he would open up the White House for the inauguration. Right. People came in and trashed the White House for that. So if you want to start off with the inauguration, you might expect uh, – right? No, continue. Uh, that's a mistake. Okay. Um so that was one thing. Um, the other thing, I think, Larry, and you might be able to speak to this to a certain extent, the kitchen cabinet was something, you know, he, uh, Jackson didn't want to be pinned down with the traditional way that things were done. And so he created cabinet positions that were his, quote, unquote, kitchen, kitchen cabinet. And those were his advisors. He didn't care about the, the, the way that things had been done before. Larry, do, do, are you there? Yeah, you know, I... I I was about to hang up so I could listen on the radio because it's hard for me to. Uh, oh, you can't hear him that well. So he was talking about how Jackson was um, the, the the people's president. And he invited them all to uh, the inauguration, and they trashed the White House. Well, you know what? I was That's talking better. about the kitchen can, cabinet too. Wait, can you imagine what the White House is going to look like at the end of four years of Trump? Mar-a-Lago, is that what it's called? Oh my God, that's what I, I'm, I'm as scared of, of that as anything is is what he's going to do to the White House. Uh, can I say uh, this on the radio? It'll look more like Metairie than it does now. Oh, that was not. Uh, we got friends in Metairie. I know. I'm I just so know. joking on that. <laughs> All right. All right. So um, let me move on to you know oh, I, I and because it's very it's such static on here. I really have a hard time hearing. So I'm going to listen. Okay. Larry, thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you again soon. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Good luck, Morgan. All right. You take care, Larry. Good good talking to you. Same here. Bye. All right. So, Morgan, let's uh, let's make sure we have time enough uh, to get a, a little bit in on the um, on your uh, big event coming up this weekend before uh, we get too far down the track of this analogy that probably nobody in the world is is interested in beyond me. I mean, I, I just... No, I think it's fascinating, I, and I yeah. think it, it has been written about the Jackson and Trump analogy. It's probably the best really? one in I history. I haven't seen that. Oh, it, it is, it, it's been spoken about, and if you want to go look, just Google Jackson and Trump, and you will find a good deal of information about the similarities. There's probably never been... You see how smart I am? You are. You're right. I thought that's, <laughs> why, that's, that's how you got the topic, but it's, it's in there, and... Um, you know, they both were very strong, uh, strong characters, and it's a very interesting. Um, well, I parallel. hope he doesn't do any trail of tears, though. I'm, I really. You know what's interesting, also, Gene? Uh, the one thing about Jackson is we wouldn't have America without Jackson, 
And that does, is, says nothing about defending his character as a slave owner or as a person who started the Trail of Tears. It's just one of those facts that can live in coexistence with everything else. And I mean, the reason you say that is because he won the Battle, the battle of New Orleans. Yeah. Because he had that Kept ego. the British out of the South. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, you'll have to read my book on that to understand that, but I'm not What is the name of your book, by the it. way? Uh, give it a little push and tell people where they well, can buy it. Well, you know, my first book was uh, Andrew Jackson's Playbook, and my second one that I just wrote is John Lafitte's Pirate Code. And they really do deal with this particular period in American history where New Orleans was not yet American, although we were American by name. And, and, and as Larry Powell's book, Accidental City, culminates with the Battle of New Orleans, that is really the end of colonial New Orleans in some ways and the beginning of us really becoming the economic driver for the next 30, 40 years of America, largely because slavery is now going to be um, huge in the American South because of sugarcane. You know, once you open up that river, and that's what Jackson defended during the Battle of New Orleans, you know, the British, that's what they wanted, that river. Now it becomes American. Suddenly those plantations go up and down that river, and America's economy booms because of it. Hmm. Unintended consequences. Let's hope we have some positive ones out of this uh, administration, too. All right, Faulkner Festival this weekend. Tell well, me... Tell me about the festival in general and what's happening this weekend. You know, uh, in general. By the way, let's just do time, place, and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Too. Okay, so it started today, but you can still see uh, the meat and vegetables of it uh, for the following few days, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays. And what I did was just took a few notes about what I think would be the highlights for people um, um, that would be coming. One of them I saw at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. If you've heard of Dr. Kim Vazdeville, she wrote a wonderful book about the baby dolls, a Mardi Gras phenomenon. And listen to the title of this book, Breaking the Race and Gender Barriers in the, uh, of, the Mardi, of Mardi Gras Tradition. And you know about the baby dolls. I know you've had programs about them before. I know, and we had a uh, baby doll on uh, just a couple shows ago, but why don't you just uh, quick... Well, the, uh, this is a new book, and, and of course, uh, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not the expert on baby dolls, but of course, you know, in a time when women were not only um, um, discriminated against, but black women especially, and black women often uh, had jobs uh, within Black Storyville, which was a brothel, area. Mardi Gras was always a time where you kind of did reversals, where you took back control. And by saying, I'm a baby doll, that's what you want, it was a revolutionary, it was a way to become, quote unquote, show your power in the streets of New Orleans during Mardi mm. Gras. And that's just one aspect of it. Um, and, and again, other people are more articulate about this particular subject than I am. But but so, and certainly Dr. Kim Vazdeville will be, and that's nine o'clock tomorrow. All of this is at the Montleon Hotel. And by the way, this is sponsored by, you know, uh, it's the Faulkner Words and Music Festival, and, and they do an incredible job in bringing books to schools and reading programs throughout the city of New Orleans. Um, so it's it's a nonprofit. Twenty five years they've been doing this, and so uh, and and all of these panels and workshops that they do are to not only to promote literature, l but
but literacy in New Orleans as well. And and uh, uh, they have a website, I'm sure, where we can uh, aim people to get a lot more information about the festival and about them. Yeah, wordsandmusic.org, uh, and, and and you'll have the whole thing there. Also, you know, Sybil Moriel is going to be speaking about, about her, her book. book. Yeah. Did you read it? It's fascinating. I did, and I thought it was wonderful. Did uh, you read it? A Witness to Change from Jim Crow to Political Empowerment, uh, a century after the Civil War, and a half century after the height of the civil rights movement, where are we is the question. And and for your show and for people who listen to it and for, you know, well, for anyone who has any interest in, in, in civil rights at all, it's, this is an essential book and she's a great speaker. Yeah, and, and when is she coming on? That'll be 11.30 on Thursday after me. So if you're going to be going to the Words and Music Festival, you come to see my presentation about Jean Lafitte, eh? Eh? the pirate. And why he was a Trump-like businessman in an unregulated market. There are a lot of comparisons. Black market, well, as in under the table. We have to be careful with our terminology there. But yeah, and he also did. Um, he he did trade slaves as part of his, you know, uh, how he made his money. So that's part of. We don't, you know. What you percentage s- of his business was um, uh, slave trade? Uh, you know, if you're really going to make money during the period where Jean Lafitte was, the slave trade was the number one economic way to do it. If you weren't in the sugarcane industry, and if you were in the sugarcane industry, you needed slaves. So how mm-hmm. are you going to differentiate that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, people don't look at the economic trends of American, um, the American economic engine. As we are now. Now. That's my whole thesis about right. this election and why it happened. Yes, so you, you know where I was going on that, that, that yeah. we're built on the backbones of slavery in so many ways. But what about Jean Lafitte? I don't, you know, there's just nothing but myths. I, I don't know that much about him. You studied him. Well, I mean, uh, you what know. What stands uh, out for you? The, the most interesting thing to me, everyone has the Lafitte story, right? Everyone. You talk to anyone, oh, they tell you, especially you go down to Lafitte, Louisiana, they say they have a story about Lafitte. <laughs> But, you know, the best way to understand a person is to understand the legends that they themselves promulgate. Just like our friend Mr. Trump. He says he's rich, right? He says he's big, all of those types of things. Those are the keys to his personality. And Jean Lafitte was very much the same way. So those legends are there for a reason. He was a promoter. He wanted the world to know that he was good at what he did, that he was dangerous, that he didn't mess with him, and that he was in control. And he sailed off into the sunset. He got away with... And guess what? His denouement was to be a hero of the Battle of New Orleans. So, I mean, this character is a true Louisiana politician in so many ways that we can look to modern politics and say, okay, well, there are some comparisons here. I call it laissez-faire economics. That's kind of the American... Philosophy uh, uh, translated into um, two thousand terms. Whatever. Yeah, it's a, a market without any regulation. Say all these people, they say that they want markets without regulation. Well, give, what are you going to get? Pirates. Or the modern there are equivalent thereof. Yeah. So. All right. So what else with the festival is of uh, particular note? Uh, a lot of people can't do Thursday and Friday. Is it still on on Saturday? Yeah, it, th- you, you have some interesting. I, I think uh, on Saturday you have um, a wonderful um, luncheon that's about class in America, uh, and it's based. Couldn't be more timely. Uh, exactly, and it's based on this book by Nancy Eisenberg called "White Trash and and Black Achievement," which I think is what a, a title. Uh, uh, tell me about it. 
and, and I, I have not read the book, but I've read the excerpts from it, and it really says everything about um, poverty and race in America in so many ways. And here we're having a luncheon on it, right? So you're having a nice food and get your rubber chicken and then talk about poverty and, 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 and this in America. But it's all going to a good cause on that, and I think it'll be a fascinating subject. Um, also, all of the workshops that are coming out through here, there are master classes that go on. Go on the website. There are master classes going. If you're a writer, this is a great workshop. This is a great um, um, time to, to yeah. This is a great time to invest a weekend in it because your workshops are on. You know, doing going it on your own. Should you get an editor? Will they have agents that are coming here that are going to be helpful and people that are trying to go the traditional route? And a lot of great new books and authors will be out. I can't name them all here, but a lot of them are coming out. Um, and it's going to be, and, and of course, there's the award ceremony on Saturday night, which is, is so the and, day, and, day and how would you I'm emceeing, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, what, um, how, how would you characterize the literary scene today in New Orleans as compared with um, the, the scene during Faulkner's time? During Faulkner's time, it was kind of a little golden era. It didn't last all that long, but uh, we attracted a lot of writers from around the country, and we... we certainly had people writing incredible literary achievements that we to this day read and consider to be important. What, what are some of the um, parallels between our history as a literary involvement and, and today's um, trends? It's such a great question, Jean, because I, I was thinking the other day that the, the words that you hear most often about great writing in, about New Orleans or just people's books, you know, you hear different shows about literature or you hear people talking about it. And it'll say, set, set in post-Katrina New Orleans. Mm. Set in post-Katrina New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So it's either a novel or blah, blah, blah. And, and if you think about it, what Katrina did and has done in the arts, it's also done in, in literature as well. It has uh -huh. created an event or a benchmark from which new art is uh, literature is, is coming from and and it also not just fiction but nonfiction in so many mm -hmm. ways right mm -hmm. it's made us think about race it's made us think about uh, about our relationships it's created a drama for us hmm. interesting all right so this is the words and music so the music part uh, yeah well there and you have to go look into the concerts that are um, th there's a great by the not just the concert, but there's a wonderful panel about Alan Toussaint that uh, about the life of Alan Toussaint. There's a book on that, and then there's um, I, I don't remember exactly who's on the panel, but of course there's that. There are other panels on writers about music. There's also a whole schedule of concerts that are attached to this. So just go to wordsandmusic.org. And check it out. Yeah. Um, Morgan Malthrop, I can't wait for your next um, uh, book or, or whatever the... Alexander uh, the Great. And I see that we have a caller, Miss DJ. So let's uh, see what we got there. But um, you know what? I want to weave in a, um, a sort of... It's a, it's a totally different part of the universe that we're going to talk about now. But uh, in a way... Again, it's a reflection of the politics of, of the moment. But Derwin um, Bunton is with us. He is the um, chief public defender for the city, and he's going up before the council this Friday uh, to deal with the, the continuing um, 
difficult battle that this office has had in in funding what it needs to do and, and the ramifications of what happens when they don't have the funding and the staff that they need is very is very traumatic for people who are going through the court system who need to have um, lawyers, people who will defend their case. Not everybody who goes before the court is guilty or guilty as charged. Sometimes that's the issue is really clarifying uh, the nature of the crime and whether it's what somebody has done is what they're being um, uh convicted of and, and challenged uh, and, and jailed for. So um, this is an office, uh, uh, Derwin, uh, tell me, you know, what do you usually try to do? What is your staffing level? And what is the result of you not getting the support you need? And by the way, to just tie this into what we've been talking about, this is a theme that you hear me talk about on the show a lot, and that is the reality of not holding people in public office accountable after you go vote. So for the past couple of months, we worked so hard to get people to vote, go vote, go vote, go vote. I, I can't wait to see what really happened in terms of who came out to vote because I think there are some disappointments there. But but after the vote, we have to you know pay attention to who who's going to help your office and who's not. Uh, well, f- first, thank you for having me on the show. Um, yeah, and it's it's interesting to be on the show in in this sort of moment. Um, and I was thinking about through my uh, disappointment the uh, the acceptance speech, and there was part of the acceptance speech where uh, Mr. Trump stated the forgotten man and woman in the United States is forgotten no more. Uh, he almost sounds like a public defender um, because what we do is we. Prof- we protect innocence, we defend the Constitution, and we hold our criminal justice system accountable. We are that that check on institutions that at this point have grown incredibly large uh, and their reach has gone incredibly far into people's lives affecting... Because every, of mass incarceration. Because of and, mass incarceration. And, and, and all the issues that have to do with education and the lack of jobs and all the, you know, the, the, the wider... Um, of ripple effects that uh, are, are throwing our kids out in the streets. That's exactly right. And we handle about 21,000 cases a year through our <laughs> office. And these are all folks who are too poor to afford their own attorneys. And I think a lot of misconceptions about public defenders is we represent uh, a lot of dangerous people when, in fact, you know, although we have the highest serious case caseload in the state, uh, it is a very small number compared to that 21,000 uh, that we handle on a daily basis. We handle everything in our office from simple possession of marijuana to uh, capital murder in, in our office. And as you might imagine, most of the people we represent are your friends, neighbors, family, uh, the people who, uh, get, uh, who get a little too rowdy at Jazz Fest or Mardi Gras. Uh, I like to joke with my friends when they come in town. I say, keep my card and remember my number, uh, or else you'll spend a night in jail. Uh, I I actually (laughs) know people who came here for Jazz Fest who, under very peculiar circumstances, not only did they land in jail, but in one instance that I'm familiar with, they threw a kid in jail. They listed him 
with his name backwards, so nobody could find him. He wound up sitting in jail for the entire Jazz Fest weekend because nobody knew where he was because they had listed his name wrong. And you know they did that deliberately because they were just, you know, he's a kid from Boston. He was probably a little bit aggressive with the cop. I can imagine the, the scenario. So, yeah. And that's why you need a, a public defender. That's right. why you need an attorney to help you through the system. Simple possession of marijuana. Are we really still arresting people for that? Uh, we still are arresting people for simple possession of marijuana. We're arresting them. We're prosecuting them. The, the what a waste of money. It it. It is a waste. It's a waste of money, a waste of time, a waste of resources. We have a and, and a waste of lives. You put a kid in jail because they they're doing what everybody else in America does, and 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 they come out on their on a, another track, on a criminal track. And Louisiana has some of the harshest laws when it comes to possession of of drugs. Uh, uh, some of the harshest in the country. So really, for example, there's no such thing as a misdemeanor possession of. Uh, of cocaine, whereas there's usually a misdemeanor version, uh, and this is for the sort of personal use, got caught at the party uh, sort of um, violation. You'll have that in Washington, D.C. or New York, but in New Orleans, uh, in Louisiana, it's a felony. It's, it's a felony, or a legal, a legal possession of prescription drugs. And let's That's just, a felony. And let's just follow that track. So you've been uh, you've been uh, accused, and let's say convicted of a felony conviction for a possession of cocaine. I, I have friends in high places. I have friends in high places in public office, in business, in the arts, in everything, government who use cocaine, and they're not in jail, and they don't have a felony on their records. No, no, they don't. And, and I think that's, that's some of the problem with the system and why we need the funding and resources for uh, our public defender's office, because for so long, public defender's offices in Louisiana and around the country really have failed in their duty to actually maintain balance in our system, to maintain justice and fairness in our system. What we were told we were supposed to do by our Supreme Court over 50 years ago, uh, what has evolved is an underfunded, overburdened system that uh, in many cases simply resembles a speed bump on the way to the penitentiary or the jail. In, in another example, in a way, of an ironic, unintended consequence, when you help keep a kid who's been accused of, I say a kid, it could be an adult, uh, of, of possession of marijuana out of jail, you are saving the state, the city, a lot of money, and you're saving a person's livelihood, relationship with their family, ability to have a, a life and a career. So the savings that you're achieving is well worth the money that you need to have the number of defenders that you need. And that and that's right. And so at, at 10 a.m. At, at City Council Chambers is our budget hearing. We're asking for our full request to the city from the council that it be restored, which is an additional $580,000 or so. Uh, it is it, what we're asking for is our full ask because pound for pound, a, a well-resourced public defender's office does exactly what you say. It's, it is more cost-effective. And some of the things that we are able to do 
that are in jeopardy with our uh, with our resources being as scarce as they are, we've we've proven that we can save money. We have uh, client services that works on over detention, and it saves the city and the state tens of thousands of dollars every year just in days that they don't have to pay for in jail because the time calculation is wrong. Something simple as that. You know, we've proven effective in our bail and bond advocacy so that when folks do end up in the system, they don't have extended stays that the city is has calculated cost them about $100 per day per person. And these are all savings to the taxpayers. And then there's those ripple effects that you talk about. So when we're able to help that young man, that young woman navigate the system, helping that innocent person not go to jail, uh, helping minimize the sentence, we minimize the collateral consequences that you and I and the rest of our friends and neighbors and community will have to pay for in myriad ways and enhance the opportunities that people would otherwise not have. Yeah, it, it was actually a big issue in this election campaign. It wasn't a big issue for everybody, mm-hmm. but it certainly was for people who have a lot of exposure to their friends, their family members, um, being incarcerated and, and pulled out of of, of our economic a system and, and, and put into a position. I, you know, are there statistics that um, describe the impact of a jail sentence, and let's say, again, a felony offense for use of cocaine, on the livelihood of that person and their, their immediate family over life there must be there must be some studies that have been done on this. It's got to be just devastating. There's a number of studies that are done about the impact of jail stays, and consequently the impact of an intervening force like a well-resourced public defender's office. The Brennan Center for Justice has done a number of studies. The Arnold Foundation, uh, the Pretrial Services Institute, and what they find is even a, a stay of of two any jail stay of two days or more what they find is it starts to become what they call criminogenic. You actually start manufacturing criminality where it likely would not have surfaced before. It's the very exposure to the system and then the subsequent consequences of not being able to get out from under those consequences. You, you begin to define yourself as a criminal. Exactly. One of my One of my former staff members told me, you know, when someone enters the criminal justice system, the system splits them into at least three parts, to to the sheriff, they're an inmate, to the, uh, to the police, they're a suspect, and to the courts and the district attorney, they're a defendant. They're no longer Derwin Bunton or Derwin Bunton uh, lawyer or father of two. It's, it's inmate, defendant, uh, suspect. Not 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 the way to do things. It, too much of, too many of the 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 processes that we put in place over these past few decades, um, again, very nasty unintended consequences. Um, that could be the theme of the show today: un- unintended consequences. Um, so, ten o'clock, city hall. Are you you were looking for people who are concerned about this to be there to support your case to sign those little cards so that they can speak. They only get a couple minutes because of the way um, you know, things are set up there. But at those couple of minutes, if you think about what you're going to say ahead of time, you can get the word in, especially if you've had an experience 
with someone in your family, a friend of yours that you know has been punished for their whole lives as a result of a minor infraction that I keep thinking to some extent are are pursued for the wrong reasons. I don't, I don't want – that's a whole other – we can do another show on that. But um, go, go to City Hall. Yeah, come support – uh, come support innocence, uh, the Constitution, uh, and accountability in our system by supporting the Orleans Public Defender's Office at City Hall at 10 a.m. on Friday. And we we want to hear stories from the community. And to be quite honest, our city council needs to hear those stories about what it means to come face-to-face with a criminal justice system that has grown into what it has grown into. Darwin, I'm really glad we had sort of a rocky start because uh, uh, our programming was a little un- unclear, but I'm, I'm sure glad you came. I'm, I'm glad to have heard from you, and um, I wish you all the luck. And um, I know you need to have um, uh, more like about 90 people working with you to handle the caseload. You only have 70 to 75. So when we talk those numbers of what it costs, it, it reflects a lot of people doing good work for our city. This is Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. I'll see you next week, and and by then uh, we'll start to have a better idea of the world that we're going to be living in. It's it's before Trump and after Trump, and now we're about to be in the after-Trump phase. Oh, my Lord. This is Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Um, Y'all take care.